So we're in the month of Elul. Let me explain for those who might not know. Uh, the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. If you're watching the moon like last night, it was beautiful. Um, we're in the month of Elul on our way to the next new moon, which is the new moon of Tishrei, which is Rosh Hashanah. And so, in Jewish tradition, Elul is considered to be a month in which we prepare ourselves for the new year. So that, as I've said in the past, uh, Rosh Hashanah doesn't show up like a bubble in time, like, oh, it's Rosh Hashanah, now we have to look at ourselves and it's like that we've actually engaged in the process leading up to the new year so that we're primed to do the spiritual work that we're asked to do every year at the Jewish New Year, which is to do a cheshbon nefesh, a self-assessment, to look at ourselves, to um, practice Teshuvah, the mitzvah of Teshuvah, which is the mitzvah of making amends, getting back on track, seeking and offering forgiveness where we're able in our lives. It's also a time for returning, not just returning not just towards one another, but turning again towards God, as we understand that to mean our deepest, our soul, our highest values the moral uh, imperatives of the universe, uh, all of those. So there's both, in this Cheshbon Nefesh time, there's, we, we, there's the, the instruction, the commandment is to turn towards each other and also to turn inward so that we can restore a right relationship as best as we're able with ourselves, with each other, and with God and with life. So it's a tall order, but as I like to say, who said this was supposed to be easy? Um, somebody did, and I believed it for a while. <laughs> but somehow you'll get to this place where it all just is easy. Well, that's not true. Hopefully there's moments of ease amidst our strivings and hard work. And, uh, and so I thought, what can we do this year what do I want to do this year, really? Because that's mainly why I choose topics. <laughs> um, in order to um, uh, prepare ourselves. And I was thinking about how legion, how like pervasive the dis-ease most of us are experiencing in the world right now is. How uh, um, the fixes aren't necessarily evident um, and uh, what do we do? How do we live our lives in times of, um, uh, if not catastrophe, then certainly um, disarray, frustration, um, uh, a sense of uh, a great, a pervasive sense of anxiety? Here we are. What do we do? How do we do this without succumbing? Um, I don't want to succumb. Um, people have been through hard times before. 
I don't have to like feel like I'm especially afflicted. Do you know what I mean? Um, uh, I know that life sometimes breaks people, uh, but we don't have to be broken. And to realize that in this sense there's nothing new under the sun, that terrible hardships, that all kinds of frustrations, personal and societal, have been the swinging pendulum of human history. That's just, you know, just the way it is. Then how do we deal with when the pendulum swinging this way? How do we keep our sense of um, what's important, keep our hearts open, keep our eye on our ball that we want to be striking at? You know, how do we do it? <sighs> so, turns out that just as the human situation, that, that predictable human situation has not changed since in recorded human history, and I'm sure before that, there have also been efforts by cultures to articulate the principles that we could attach ourselves to, that might assist us to keep our, uh, keep our balance, right? to keep our heart open, keep joy in our lives, keep um, a sense of purpose, keep all of that. That's what I want. Judaism's been around a long time. We have watched empires rise and fall. We've seen it all. This is as true now, this is as true 2,000 years ago as it is now. And so I decided to start the class by turning to a collection of wisdom sayings that many of us have studied before called Pirkei Avot. They never get old. That is the sign of a good wisdom saying, right? If Confucius says it and we still relate to it, then there's something right about it, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, well, we have our own. Yeah, it tells a universal truth. A universal truth, a universal human truth. We have our own collection. And um, I go back to it again and again, and I have my favorites, and I have some that speak to me more than others. And so what I did for the, at least the first couple of weeks of this class is I excerpted from Pekabo. I excerpted a lot. I didn't give you the whole collection. I'm giving you about maybe a third of it here. Uh, that we're gonna, I'm going to pass out in a moment. But I also wanted to say that there's a lot of wisdom in this room. And there's a lot of, a lot of, 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 of uh, aware, evaluated life experience in this room, so that we actually can also count on each other. Uh, so what I would love this class to be is both a reflection on these ancient things, these ancient sayings, but then also one of us might have something to say that will really illuminate someone else's eyes. You know, oh, I forgot, or oh, that's so helpful, or thank you. Because what I want as a community and for myself is a, a bunch of people who are helping each other, remind each other of what the walk, walk is that they want to walk and what the talk is they want to talk and, and sustain and support each other. Otherwise, it's like this isn't an act, this is not an academic subject for me. That's not what the classes here at the synagogue are primarily for. They're for us to connect our lives to our tradition and then to one another. So that's, 
That's my hope for what, for what we'll do together. And I don't have a particular... I'm going to let the words speak and guide us. Uh, I had a great time going through them. That's a, a beautiful exercise. So, um, uh, so let's pass them around, and then we'll start, we'll start talking. if there's any latecomers. <clears throat> so, context. Pirkei Avot uh, often gets translated as the chapters of the fathers or the teaching of the... But an Av, in this case, is a sage. Now, one of the um, problems with ancient wisdom like this is that... Uh, did you... Um, give this to Stacy. She just came in. Thank you. Um, one of the limitations of ancient wisdom is that every single person here is a man. That doesn't mean it's not good stuff, but it is a limitation. And there's nothing I can do about it. Because the women's words didn't get written down. Right? So. I am counting on women's voices in this class to reflect on this, to give a different, you know, to whatever. That doesn't mean they don't apply to all human beings. You understand what I mean? But it's still a limitation that we, I've only become aware of in my adult lifetime, right? So I want to say that. Still, that doesn't diminish for me the power of these teachings. But we can add to it, and I think that's very important. And I wanted to say that. And I'll repeat it next time, too, so that we, we can't, it's very easy to forget. Um, so, and Pirkei, chapters, teachings. So, a parak also is like an, an, a, um, a, uh, a piece. Like, so, these are, so these are wisdom aphorisms of the sages. This little collection, it's six short chapters, essentially opens the Talmud, right? The Talmud, this massive, the, 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 the Mishnah, the, this six-volume collection from the third century, which is, was created by a man named Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the patriarch. The, he was the unofficial head of the Jewish community and lived in the Galilee in the late second century and early third century. And, had in, and there was, by this point, a tradition of rabbinic 
teachings and interpretations that dated back many centuries. And Rabbi Yehuda Nasi was such a, um, a uh, such a uh, widely revered leader that he was able to create what was the first organized compilation of Jewish teaching and law after the Bible, right? So this is many centuries later, in the end of the second century, beginning of the third century, he collected the sprawling body of rabbinic interpretations, laws, and rulings uh, that had emerged over hundreds of years of Torah interpretation, and collected them into an organized set of books called the Mishnah. Uh, the Mishnah then becomes the, found, the foundation, becomes universally accepted in Jewish world. Not quite. <laughs> the, when the Ethiopian Jewish community was discovered in the last hundred years, they had been isolated from mainstreams of Jewish culture and life for so long that they actually didn't know about or follow the Mishnah. So that's a whole other fascinating story. How, which is part of the joy of being Jewish for me, which is how is it possible that a Jewish group maintained its identity for 2,000 years, separated from the developing mainstream understanding of what Judaism is, and then could be rediscovered and still be yearning for a return to Zion. It's just astounding. Did you want to say something about that, Warren? A uh, question. Um, was what you said about the Ethiopian Jews also true about Jews in Yemen or in India? Uh, the Jews in Yemen and in India were not isolated, quite as isolated and unknown. Okay. So there was discourse, even though they were pretty separate. But they, they, what, when the Ethiopian Jews were, were, were kind of made known to the larger Jewish world, Ethiopian Jews don't have rabbis. They still have priests. That's how long they were on a separate track. So that's... that's, uh, that's Did they that's, have the Torah? They had the Torah. Because, but the rabbinic Judaism, which is what we are the inheritors of, this is it, um, is, became the normative interpretation of the Torah for Jews. And the Ethiopian Jews didn't have it. Um, no so Maimonides. Huh? No Maimonides. We're going way back before Maimonides. Way back. Uh, before, before, before BC. Right. Okay, so that's a nice, that's another interesting excursion. So, Yurahanasi, in addition to all the laws and rulings uh, that make up the Mishnah, that try to, try to regularize Jewish law and Jewish life in uh, the third century, <coughs> also included as a kind of introduction this collection of wisdom teachings from the tradition. And he collected them, and, and remember, this is, a, this is a tradition, you know how what, when, you, when, when we encounter as modern people um, uh, Eastern traditions or indigenous traditions, they are always speaking in the name of, they are the 18th in the lineage of, they, there are lineages, spiritual lineages. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. um, that is how rabbinic Judaism operated in these centuries. 
There were lineages. And so if we were studying the entire book, we would see that it begins laying out the lineage from Shimon the Righteous, who is the, considered to be one of the progenitors of rabbinic Judaism. We know very little about him, but he doesn't live in the 3rd century CE. We know he lived in like the 3rd century BCE. Right? So there's a four or five hundred years of wisdom lineage that's being recorded in this book. I want to give you this context. These are not all contemporaries, all speaking at the same time. This is the accumulated wisdom saying of the rabbinic lineage. And was most of it written down? It was not written down until Yehuda Hanasi. It was taught from teacher... It was taught from teacher to student. It was an oral tradition. Those of you familiar with Judaism know that we speak of the written Torah and the oral Torah. The written Torah is the Torah scroll and the rest of the books of the Hebrew Bible. Those got written down by scribes. Uh, And and that was a written tradition that comes into play around maybe 800 BCE and by by 400 or 300 BCE is a fixed written tradition, 200. What happens at that point is that the scribes, remember, this is, not a liter- these are, this is not a time of widespread literacy. To be a scribe meant you were the keeper of the knowledge. The scribes, who are also referred to as the rabbis, were the literate class whose job was not only to maintain this written sacred text, but to teach it and interpret it. And the rabbis, who are also the scribes in this early time, become known as, the, their, their interpretations of the tradition become known as the oral Torah, Torah al Peh. It wasn't written down. Now picture a time, after several hundred years, of oral Torah, also, you also probably know this. We have lost our capacity for memorization. But a hundred years ago, maybe in our childhood, some of our childhood, <coughs> memorizing and being able to recite long, long pieces was considered a normal educa- per educated person's ability. Do you, am I right? Mm-hmm. I just remember a few poems that I had to memorize. Yeah, in, like Shakespeare. In, right, but it was part of an education. In fact, the word Mishnah, which is the Hebrew word for the collection this comes from. Lishanot, v'shinantam levanecha. When it says in the Ahavta, and you shall teach it to your children. So lishanot means to teach. But what lishanot actually means is to repeat. Right? Because think of old-time education. Say, the teacher says it, everybody repeats it. You learn it. You don't have it on a, in a book. And so... This was an oral tradition, but it was an oral tradition that was faithfully transmitted. Because, in fact, there were people, when you read in the Talmud, who were, were who it gets talked about, who were the memorizers in the academies. They were the walking encyclopedias. They weren't necessarily regarded as great scholars. But they really could remember. And those people would be picked out I think this still happens in Tibetan Buddhism and monasteries, and this is still, uh, you know, a, 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 a way that wisdom gets transmitted in certain settings. Yes. 
in the uh, schools for uh, Muslim uh, boys, the madrasa, that from my understanding, that's basically all they teach. Them. Right, memorizing the Quran is considered to be what uh, one of the main purposes and goals of that. And also, I remember meeting a Korah player who from West Africa uh, who came to the area many, many years ago. And he had, he, his job as the Korah player, he was the historian of his tribe. And his, but he learned it through songs. And his, that's why the word a, a bard, an ancient bard, Homer wasn't recited. Homer was sung, right? And a Korah player, uh, he, he had like, it was 20 or 30 generations of lore that was part of his job in the tribe as the keeper of that history. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's a whole lot. So, all of that's worthy to actually discuss because this becomes the first time that the oral tradition gets written down. That didn't stop it from to this day being called the oral tradition. I just want you to understand that. When we speak of rabbinic teachings, we call it the oral tradition, even though it hasn't been the oral tradition primarily for a very long time. Does that make sense? Um, Jonathan? Yes. So, did, was this really one person who compiled all this and wrote it all down, or was there a team? Just, oh, great. I don't know how many people work for Yehuda Hanasi. <clears throat> I can tell you that we know a fair amount about him, and that his, his teachings are in here. One of the things we know about him is that he lived in Tsipori in the Galilee, which is where my brother and sister-in-law live today. And Tsipori was a major Roman city in the north at the time where there were Christians, Jews, and uh, pagans all living together. And Yehuda Hanasi lived there because he was also responsible, I don't know how he rose to this position of merit exactly, to be the interlocutor between the Jewish community and the Roman officials. And uh, so one can assume he had a, a, a sort of school of people around him assisting him. Uh, he made severe editorial decisions. So severe that, and this is worth describing to you as well. So the Mishnah is a, is a fairly concise book, set of books, it's six volumes. But it's fairly concise. It doesn't ramble that much. It's like he was trying to collect Jewish practice and law into one volume. One of the reasons historians think he was doing that is that once Jerusalem, which had been the center of, of Jewish life, had been destroyed by the Romans in the year 70, by about 100 years later, when Yehuda Nassis is born, and there were another 40 years of continuing rebellions after that. Jewish life was uh, decentralized. Much had been destroyed. Many had been killed. Much had been lost. And scholars think that that may be one of the reasons why Yehuda Nasi, now that he was dealing with a Jewish community that had lost its administrative and um, religious center, needed to do this because we don't know exactly what compelled him to do it, but that's a reasonable guess, I think. Uh, so he culled from this massive body of rabbinic literature and teachings and sayings his version. And he was a big enough deal that it took root, right? Not everybody's collection of everything you needed to know about X necessarily becomes what everybody 
says it's it, right? However, the rabbinic tradition was decentralized enough that the teachings that weren't included in the Mishnah continued to be taught in the academies verbally. So that what happened after the Mishnah becomes, is finished in around the year 216, that's, that seems to be the best guess, uh, is that commentaries on the Mishnah begin being composed. Those commentaries make up what we know of as the Talmud. <coughs> the Talmud is the Mishnah and all of its commentaries. The ta- oh, also known as the Gemara. Talmud or Gemara. Gemara is another Aramaic word for teaching or learning. Talmud is a Hebrew word for teaching or learning. Mishnah is a Hebrew word for teaching or learning. If you're getting my thread about what Judaism is focused on. Uh, Gail? Doesn't it also include teachings that were not included? That's what I was the rest of my sentence. Yeah. (laughs) When you read a page of Mishnah, a page of Talmud, it begins with an excerpt from the Mishnah, from the six volumes that... And then it has pages, sometimes pages, of explication on it. And a typical Talmudic statement will go. This is what the Mishnah says, but my teacher so-and-so brought a teaching that says this, a teaching that was not included in the Mishnah. And then they will debate about the (coughs) relative merits or meaning of these sometimes contradictory teachings. So, So you have the Mishnah as the first codification of the oral law, which of course leads to this, there's still a gigantic body of teaching and a decentralized Jewish um, world. Um, and uh, there's no pope, remember, uh, to make something doctrine. So that something that, when you study Christian history by the Middle Ages, heretical versions of the, versions of Christian uh, scriptures that are considered to be heretical can be fully excommunicated, right? Because there's a now a centralized Holy Roman Empire mm-hmm. and a pope that is the papa who makes all these decisions infallibly. Whereas in Judaism, that never happens, thank God. I really mean it. Thank God that never happened. And um, so that uh, those, those surrounding viewpoints continually find their way, meandering, working their way back into Jewish teaching because they never got, they couldn't get, nobody X'd them out. You follow what I'm saying? It leads to this, what for me is one of the kind of, I I guess one might say unanticipated uh, um, wonderful things about Judaism, which is this open and unfettered debate Mm -hmm. that characterizes our idea of what it means to study. You, you follow what I'm saying? So that's why, again, that's why this remains so accessible to me. Because it's not the last word. Nor in Judaism is it supposed to be the last word. And that's why all of our voices, in relation to the text, is what Jewish study is about. Right? So, um, so I wanted to say all of that as a way of framing um, 
what, what we're up to here and where this comes from. Historical context is very important to me. And that's my best understanding of the historical context <laughs> of this, you know. Because uh, my word is also not the last word. <laughs> uh, yes? You said the commissioner is six books? Six volumes. Volumes. And what about the Talmud? Ah, the Talmud is 47. <laughs> Picture uh, that. Uh, uh, uh. Picture that. You take the little section of Mishnah, you expand, expand. So even though the Talmud is based on the Mishnah, there are something like 47 tractates of the Talmud as opposed to six volumes of the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah is also, each volume of the Mishnah is divided into a tractate, so that's not exactly fair. So there are 47 tractates of the Mishnah compressed into six <coughs> sections. And the Talmud expounds and expands on each one of those 47, so that if you look at a set of Talmud, it's just, if the Mishnah is this on my shelf, the Talmud's about six times longer. Yeah, that would be the best way to describe it. Yeah? Is there a significance to number 47 that you've just mentioned twice? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Not that I'm aware of. In fact, the, there are two Talmuds. The there's the, something called the Babylonian Talmud and something called the Jerusalem or Palestinian Talmud. Because once the mission had been created, the Jewish community was already in diaspora, dispersed. And there was a, there was a very, very... Um, active and powerful Jewish center in Babylonia, and there was an active and powerful Jewish center in the Galilee. Each one of those schools, <coughs> I mean school with a small c, you know, each one of those uh, schools uh, developed their own Talmud. And uh, the, the Jerusalem, the Palestinian Talmud is shorter and less complete than the Babylonian Talmud. <coughs> Excuse me. That's an accident of history. Because what happened to the Galilee is it eventually became absorbed into the Byzantine Empire, which led its way into the Dark Ages. And a lot of knowledge was lost. Whereas the Babylonian <coughs> Jewish community found itself at the center of the um, spread of Islam. And the Golden Age of Islam one of the, in that period, literacy was prized in the Islamic world. And so they also had a huge, starting in the 7th, 8th, 9th century, a huge network throughout uh, of, of communications, of uh, organization. There was no Dark Ages then, and the Babylonian Talmud was preserved. And so, uh, uh, so again, this isn't, you only see this with the hindsight of hundreds of years of history. In the meantime, all we can do is do our best to preserve and pass on with as much integrity as we can. We have no idea what history's story will be about our efforts, just like the rabbis doing this had no concept of, of the fact that we would be studying the words of a third century uh, uh, sage in the Galilee right now. Right, it's just, just the way it is. It's crazy, isn't it? Yes, Gary. Is there a difference in the in the spiritual tone or voice between the Mishnah and the Talmud? Uh, <coughs> um, uh, not in the spiritual tone or voice. No, no. Um, the the Mishnah is concise. 
the Talmud is absolutely sprawling. And uh, uh, that, that's, a, that's how they differ stylistically, so that the Talmud will take excursions, like, how did we get here? And uh, um, the Mishnah tends to follow a more large, logical order. Gail? I read somewhere a long time ago that the Mishnah was more sort of like this halakhic kind of um, how we should be in the world and that the more kind of mystical and anecdotal stuff right. would then appear in the Talmud. That's right. The Mishnah was a boiled-down guide to how, to, how Jewish life should be lived. Uh, but, uh, and then the Talmud brings in uh, not so much mystical, uh, but uh, um, sociological, anecdotal, um, uh, you'll find, you know, uh, you'll find anything possible in the Talmud. It's like, it's an incredible collection of lore and law. Yeah, 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 that's right. Okay. All right, good. So, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi determined that in addition to um, this six-volume collection of how to live a Jewish life, in terms of this is the laws and practices, that the Mishnah also should have an introduction to how to live a life, right? how to live an examined life. And that's what this collection is. So let's look at the first one. Shimon HaTzadik, Shimon the Righteous, was among the last members of the Great Assembly. That means dating back to several centuries before this, uh, this was composed. And this was a favorite teaching of his. And by the way, a lot of these favorite teachings, like many, uh, go in threes. There's a lot of that, just like in other... You know, I'm sure we're familiar with that form. I'm not sure why we humans like it so much, but I, it, there's a lot of threes. The world rests on three things. Some of us will know this from the song. Al HaTorah, on Torah, Al HaAvodah, Avodah is on the service of God or on prayer or worship, Al Gemilut Chasadim, and on deeds of loving kindness. So, the, the Perkevot begins with a real, like, foundational statement. You know, you, want, you're, you have a three-legged stool, say, without either of these legs, we can't go on. So what are the three legs? Um, when we say, when the Mishnah says, the sages say Torah, we have to understand what they mean by Torah. What do, you, what do you hear when you hear the word Torah? There's not a wrong answer, but I want to make sure we understand what, what they're after. Anybody? Yeah. <coughs> Law. Right. It's not what they mean. <laughs> it's part of what they mean. Learning. Learning. Mm-hmm. Learning. Law. Mm-hmm. Teaching. Guidance. Teaching. Guidance. All of that. Scripture. Yes. Scripture. Scriptures. The written Torah, right? So the Torah is both, is all of these, the written Torah. It becomes understood to be Jewish law, Torah. 
But Torah also means instruction, guidance, or teaching. The word lahorot, which is the verb <coughs> that Torah is the verbal noun made out of. Do you know what I mean? Um, uh, lahorot means to guide, to teach. Anybody ever have a moreh in school, in Hebrew school? A morah or a moreh is someone who teaches. <coughs> lahorot is also to aim and shoot. So it has that connotation to it. And a hore is a parent. Herayon is to be pregnant. Um, so horim are your parents. Um, so it's about, what is this word? Isn't that beautiful? It's um, to instruct, to guide, to uh, teach. To learn from. To learn. It's everything in everything that could be... Con- you have to think of all the things that could be contained in that Hebrew, Hebrew verb to reduce it, as English translations did via Christianity, to the law yeah. is so clearly tendentious trying to reduce Judaism to what they're trying to supersede or transcend that it's so unfair to translate the Torah as the law. Uh, I hope you understand what I'm saying. Um, yes? As you're speaking, what comes to me is how to grow up. Good, good, good. What do our teachers and parents, what are they trying to do? If they are, the, they are, their names are associated with this activity. Yeah, teach us how to grow up. Good. Um, uh, yes, Susan. Teaching about being a better person in the world. That's part of what we're hoping our teachers and our parents are going to do, right? The purpose of Torah is not so that we obey the law. The purpose of Torah is so that we fulfill the divine potential that Judaism asserts is in every single human being. We're made in the image of God. We have this astonishing potential. How do we actualize it? That's the question of of what guidance would be. So, yes, yeah. Also about how we live in the world. It's not about the afterlife. It's not about salvation. It's about how we live in the world. Right, in this world. No question about it. Um, <coughs> though Judaism certainly occupies itself with um, what it takes to reach the afterlife, the world to come. But it's all about your actions here in this world. It's not about um, random salvation and it's not about uh, um, an act of faith. Right, right. Yes? I think it's also about honoring the unknowable, the mystery. Honoring the mystery. You have to. How else are you going to be a, a, a true sage? You know, how are you going to be a, 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 a mature human being and not understand that, that our life is embedded in mystery? Right? If we reduce life to something that we think we've got a handle on. Mm -hmm. That's not wise. (laughs) Now we're getting over to the area of service to God. Right. Let's go there in a minute, though, but you're right. You're right. Uh, Yes? So when a a non-Jew or a foreigner or whatever says to you, what is Torah, how do you answer? It's our guide to living our guide to living a righteous, 
and fulfilled life. That's what the rabbis mean by Torah. It's the wisdom that will guide us to leading a, a righteous and fulfilled life. Um, so we are so used to either thinking of Torah in utterly concrete terms, it's that book, it's that scroll, right? Or um, having adopted the dominant culture's understanding of what Torah is, law, Jewish law, which is so unuplifting, <laughs> right? Oh yeah, that's what we have to do. We, do, we follow the laws of Judaism. That's not what the rabbis meant, though they were very devoted to the laws of Judaism. But they saw the fulfillment and practice of these laws as the gateway, as a spiritual practice that would lead us to a fulfilled and reverent life. Right? Does that make sense? Now again, we come from a very free-flowing, libertine worldview. It's like, <clears throat> I don't want to follow all these rules. But when I've talked to Tibetan Buddhist uh, friends and other people, when they, are, when they go off to the monastery, they spend years learning hundreds of specific, detailed practices, that they, laws, that they have to follow in order to reach the, their, the spiritual goal of enlightenment. Right? You don't get... Here it is. It's, we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of Woodstock, which was the <laughs> antithesis of any of this. Right? And it still fully informs my sense of how life should be. Right? So we have to acknowledge that at other times, the path, at other times, in other places, and in some of our own lives, who have felt the need to take on rigorous spiritual practices, whether it's Orthodox Judaism, which, when taken in that way, is a rigorous spiritual practice. I would, I would say probably the, the, the vast majority of, of, of uh, Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews are not paying much attention to that aspect of what its purpose is, because they're human beings, and they, they like most human beings, um, do you need anything? I'm so sorry, but I think my cell phone, maybe somebody took it off the counter with them. Can you just check? Because I was answering emails, and now my phone is not there anymore. Great. And it may ring. If what color? What does it look black. like? What's your number? Somebody call it. Is there a phone ring? You call it. Okay, let's call your number. Oh, Gwen's calling it right now? Yes. We all turned our phones off. <laughs> <laughs> Before you leave, could you really just check to make sure you have your cell phone? Okay? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, here it is. Oh, oh, it was me. Deborah. Deborah, congratulations. Congratulations. <laughs> One of those gifts of humility. <laughs> okay, I'm going to share something that uh, uh, um, I, I'm, I'm going to be talking about again on Rosh Hashanah. There's, um, there, there's a uh, 
a thread of teaching in, in, in Judaism that, you know how on um, the high holidays on the Rosh Hashanah, the book is open and all our deeds are recorded. And that's why we make, try to make amends so that we can <clears throat> clean up our page in the Book of Life for this year. And there's a saying that, there's a teaching that um, there, that, um, there are, that God has three books. One book is for the completely righteous. And one book is for the completely wicked. And one book is for everybody else in between. And the Hebrew word literally is benonim, which means the in-betweeners. And the book of the completely righteous is empty. <laughs> <laughs> and we have to absorb that the book of the completely wicked is also empty because who hasn't done in their life some good deed or act of kindness, right? So that we're all in the same book. So who cares if you took the cell phone today? I'll take it tomorrow. Like, and with that attitude, you know, we can be more kind to each other. Um, yes, Warren. I had a cell phone taken in Madrid and returned, but that's a story that for later. Wow, returned. Mine wasn't returned. <laughs> but a question for you that's, that's rather different. Under the big shade tree of Judaism, there are orthodox, but do we also quarrel about interpretation? Yes. A lot. Yes. Now, in Islam, and I, as some people know, lived in a Muslim country for two years, they really have a problem with Yes, and more, more than we do, I think, and the Christians, you can argue the point, but interpretation is very important. Because I would suggest that some of the Orthodox, whether they're Ashkenazi Orthodox or Sephardic Orthodox or Mizrahi Orthodox, they also have almost no room for interpretation. That's still true. Yeah. Yes, okay. yes, fundamentalists everywhere don't want there to right. be much right. doubt, or uh, they want to know what to do and how to do it. And so one of our human, one of our human failings, and I won't um, that spirit, and one of our human failings, and one of the things that uh, spiritual uh, paths and programs like Judaism and every other uh, all struggle with, is that we humans get confused regularly, that by fulfilling, by checking off all the boxes, we are a good person, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and now just tell me what boxes to check so I can get into heaven, right? Because I just want to do the right thing, and I just want to be on the team that wins, and I just want to, right? And I just don't want to, I just don't want God to, to send me to hell, and I just don't, you know? And so that kind of concrete thinking uh, is not what Prakavot's about. Um, if I may add one little point. Yeah. Um, in Hebrew, we often use the phrase Safa Mishutefet, a common language. Orthodox have a common language within their lane. Yeah. Do they have common languages with other Orthodox other people? A very different question. So we should bring in an Orthodox Jew to really talk about that with yeah. us, rather than me spout off sure. about it. Sure. Uh, 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 humans everywhere are inclined to want to know what the rules are, and if they're good, will they get the prize? And, uh, um, you know, being, what, what'd we say, what'd you say the Torah was? Uh, 
growing up. Growing up. It's not only growing up as a person. I mean, it's the whole journey of Judaism and the Jewish people growing up, paralleling our own individual growing up. So that's, you know, part of what the Torah seems to be. But we didn't follow the rules. Perkevot is for grown-ups, okay? It's not for people who just are still trying to win the multiple choice contest. Okay, this is, this, that's why I love it so much, is that it be, opens up the Mishnah, which is very specific how to do it. But clearly, for the framers of, the rabbinic framers of Judaism, that was not the whole story. That had to be a, a, um, a vehicle for this, right? And so when they studied in the academies, they studied not only Jewish law, but they were studying what Torah, Torah for them was more than that. And that's just, again, I've said this many times. We labor, we Jews, under the burden of centuries of Christian stereotyping. Christianity wants us to be the religion of law, which justifies Christianity's existence as an outgrowth of Judaism. Does that make sense? We are simply a, um, what, what's the word I'm looking at? Not Paul guy, but... Um, Scapegoat, scapegoat. Scapegoat, yeah. Uh, precursor? Precursor. Uh, pre- it's more than precursor. Foil. Uh, foil. That's the word I was thinking. Of. We are the foil mm. for, the, for Christianity. Mm. Right? And um, <coughs> there are many modern Christians who are abandoning this right now and actively refuting it. So I have plenty of Christian friends who get this and are trying not to perpetuate it. I just want to say that. But the reason... Uh, we might have this like so hard to crack idea of what Torah is, uh, is because it's been pounded on, and and for for centuries, that Judaism had become ossified, and was considered to be just law, until Christianity came along to remind us of love. Okay, that's very important to remember, and it burdens us Jews with appreciating the, this incredible spiritual depth of our own tradition. Mm-hmm. Yes? So, Gail, I think you talked about afterlife. Mm-hmm. Afterlife. After, Gail after, mentioned after, afterlife. Afterlife, okay. This is something that has puzzled me about Judaism. Because in Christianity... That it's pu- uh, can you hear, Carol? No. You, can you talk louder or should sure. I repeat what you say? Sure. So, the afterlife is something that has puzzled me about Judaism. In Christi- as, as a Christian, it, to, to us, that's like the prize, you know, is the, is, the, is the afterlife. You get to go be with Jesus and all these saints and, you, you know, your wings and your, all of that. Um, maybe, not, maybe not all Christianity has that as necessarily the goal. The goal may be that you just get to live a good life and be happy. Um, but in Judaism, is there, there's not a lot of emphasis on afterlife. Well, one of the ways to answer that question, and I don't want to take too long a digression, yeah. is that Judaism has been around a long time and has lived in, and hasn't been, a, it's, and has been embedded in other 
cultural centers, in other philosophical realms, in the other, so that if you read the great Jewish teachers, say, of the 11th century um, Spain, they are rejecting afterlife. If you read the great Jewish teachers of this era, they are fully embracing afterlife. Mm -hmm. So again, I think this may, I don't don't know exactly, but um, it's hard to give a concise answer, I'd say impossible, but what Judaism has to say about the afterlife. But let's look at one of these teachings, and so I know that's not an answer to your question. uh, but here's a typical Perkei uh, Avot teaching that'll get, give you an idea. Look at page 7. Down at number 21. Page 7, number 21. Did you find it? Yes. Great. Rabbi Yaakov would say, Rabbi Yaakov Omer, this world is compared to a foyer, which leads to the world to come. Okay, so clearly there's an afterlife. And by the way, the Hebrew word for foyer is prozdor, corridor, or, you know, anteroom, which is a Greek word. So this isn't a time uh, when Greek is the lingua franca of the Mediterranean, and where a thousand loanwords from Greek make it into Jewish teaching, and if the loanwords make it in, then we know that the cultural attitudes and beliefs of Greek and then Roman civilization also made it in. So we can't ever look at this as a kind of hermetically sealed, this is Judaism. It just doesn't work that way. Um, But then look at 20, oh, so prepare yourself in the foyer, that you may be worthy to enter the main hall. (laughs) Right? So yes, this life is a preparation for an afterlife. Uh, And by the way, the the main hall is traklin, another Greek word which means banquet hall. (laughs) Because for them, they're picturing there's there's just a great feast that if if you do it right here, you're ready to be admitted into the great feast. But then... He says, and this is where I, this is this is why I love these teachings. He would also say, repentance and good deeds in this world, even for a moment, are better than eternal life in the world to come. Okay, beautiful statement. Yet, one moment of bliss in the world to come is more exquisite than all of life in this world. <laughs> now, why do I think this is a true wisdom teaching? It's a paradox. He gets it. He gets it. Right? It's not this or that. And it's not linear. And it's not um, uh, mechanical. Because life isn't like that. Our souls don't operate that way. That's not our experience of living. I love this teaching. Yes, Diane. This sums up my feeling about heaven. Yes. It's a mystery, I don't know, and it doesn't matter because how I behave here is what's important. That's right. However, in the Jew, yes, thank you. How you behave here is what's important. And the rabbis call Shabbat, me'en olam haba, a taste of the world to come. Mm-hmm. 
So they don't know what the world to come is. Mm. But they know that there's this bliss that's available to us in which all of our deeds and actions and our ego and our constrictions and our structures dissolve immediately where we are experiencing something infinite and eternal. And so they call, they call Shabbat a taste of the world to come. The point being that they are projecting, yes, in, into some <coughs> mystery, but that they can taste it here. And um, it's also called Gan, uh, taste of Gan Eden, of, of the Garden of Eden, of paradise, all of that. But we can taste it here, and it can give us an intimation of the banquet that awaits us once we leave this mortal coil. But my point is, yes, we don't know what that is, but we can taste it. And um, so life is about doing everything we can here, but also making sure that we take time to taste the bliss. Right? That's what I hear Rabbi Yaakov saying. Now, other people had hands up. Amy? On page six. Oh, wait. Is this related to... Uh, yes, it's related. Oh, great. On page six, number four, on the very bottom. Ah, yes. So, that, so that's a little bit of a contradiction. Yes. Nice, huh? Rabbi Levitas of Yavne would say, page six, number four. Did you spot it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Rabbi Levitas of Yavne would say, be very, very humble. For mortal's hope is but the grave. And Rima is worms, actually. For a mortal's hope is simply is worms, right? Right, so no afterlife here. Yep. <laughs> That's a... Uh, who, or is this a theological statement or a wisdom saying that it's like... Which one do you need to take out of your pocket today? Uh-huh. So that's how I see wisdom sayings. Uh-huh. It's like they're not, they're not rigid formula because they're not telling us how to, they're not like a recipe on the that, uh, half a cup of this and a pinch of that. It's like, no, this is about wisdom, which is awareness. So which awareness do you need? Do you need Rabbi Levitas's awareness today? Uh, be very, very humble because we're all going to the same place. Right? Right. Or do you need um, uh, Rabbi Yaakov's uh, wisdom today, which is that repentance and good deeds, there's nothing better. Eternal bliss, there's nothing better. <laughs> uh, you know, which wisdom do you need so that we're not going to get what, so much, so, what I so much want, which is please tell me how to survive this next year by what I should do, right? That's not what we get to do. We get to create the attitudinal frameworks that will allow us to endure what life is throwing at us. That, and, and so that's kind of what I'm after. Susan, then Gail, then Anne. Well, I just wanted to say something about the idea of law, seeing Judaism as just the law. And I remember a class with you and uh, Reverend Matthew, yeah. right? Um, uh, where he talked about you know comparing Judaism and Christianity, and and Reverend Matthew, who's a minister, said that uh, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, and that he was of the Pharisee school, the school of compassion, and he his mentor was Hillel, who taught uh, you know basically yes. te- 
do unto others as you would have them do unto you and help the poor and the needy and the downtrodden. So in that part of Judaism, love was very much a part of it. And, and, and Jesus was in that part of Judaism. Right. He taught those Right. So, so, thank you. That is precisely <coughs> the segment of Christianity, people like uh, Matthew Wright, who are trying to, um, doing their best to um, um, transcend, transform, transform, get rid of, and look at the historical sources and come up with a new story about Jesus and Jesus' relationship with Judaism. Because when you study Christian history, Jesus has nothing bad to say about Judaism. Right. right. Jesus was, was a teaching to Jews in the Jewish context. And uh, it's fascinating stuff. By the way, my class in November is with Matthew. Oh. And it's called A Rabbi and a Priest Study the Gospels. Wow. So, um, and yeah. that's the start of a joke, I'm sure. <laughs> but. Well, you have to walk into a bar. Uh, uh, that's right. Uh, but. Just so you know, that's our purpose. We and you are. I hope a lot of you can come. We're going to be starting in, on the, in this. We're going to do this class for four weeks. You'll have to hold it in Madison Square Garden. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do this class for four weeks. This class. Then the high holidays come, and I and and that'll take us all through October. And then in the beginning of November, uh, we'll be teaching in this Thursday time. That's our subject. So that's an effort by both of us to transcend mm. this historically um, poisonous paradigm yeah. that we're talking about, okay? But I don't want to discuss it more now. Oh, sure. Right. Um, I'm, saying, I'm saying that that is what happened historically, and there are many efforts currently mm. to transcend that and rewrite the story, okay? Um, Gail and then Anne. understood to be revelation from whatever we mean by this mystery. Oh, thank you. That's very helpful. And, and you're speaking within that context without saying it. So that even the most sort of practical way of being in the world that may be in here is in a context where the world is infused, perfused with this mystery. Suffused. Suffused with this mystery permeating it all. So it's not like ethical humanism. That's right. That's right. Um, it's not like what? Ethical, ethical humanism. Right. Um, and it's whatever we mean by this awareness, God, mystery. And it, different people have different feelings, you know, understandings of that. But. Let me repeat that. That's important. Torah comes from God. What is God? That. <laughs> not us. Right? There's a transcendent source from which these, this wisdom and guidance springs, and which our task is to receive, right? We receive the Torah. So it's, uh, it's, it's more than, it's, it's, it's not mechanistic. It's tapping into the, the infinite, right? What other kind of wisdom school would you want to go to, right? I mean, if you are someone who wants to pursue a spiritual path. That's what you want to pursue. These rabbis weren't, weren't running mechanical drawing classes. You know, they, weren't, they, they, they understood 
that they were trying to bring down into form and practice, just like every other spiritual tradition, universal truth. Yeah. So thank you for mentioning that. Anne? Reverend Jonathan, I want to tell you a personal story Great. about the afterlife. Um, Anne, could you talk a little louder? I want to tell a personal story about the afterlife. Uh, it's about my husband. We married in 1960. And unfortunately, he died early at the age of 60 in 1991. For the past month or two, um, I've been having the following experience. I wake up, but, but I'm dreaming. I'm having this. You wake up during a dream, but you're still dreaming. Uh, yes, yes, yes. And wow. I'm not awake and I'm not asleep. Wow. And I say to myself, oh, I can't wait to tell him about this. Wow. It happened three times. Wow. And the, and the, the next time it happened, I was actually speaking to him and telling him the experience that I wanted to share with him um, because he was the most amazing man that I've ever met. Um, and I just want to say that, you know, Ham's afterlife is not dead. It's alive in my heart, in my memory, in my spirit, in my soul, in my brain. And so, there's a lot more to be said about the afterlife. I mean, I remember every detail about, we, about laying his body in the ground. Mm -hmm. But now, I'm living with my two daughters, and we have all the memories. Mm. We have all the memories, and we talk about them all the time. And we laugh, and we share, and so forth. So. I just want to tell you that the afterlife is, in some way, not a death. Thank you. Mm. You said that so beautifully. Thank you. Right. One doesn't have to. One doesn't have to reject the afterlife and say, "No, this is it." It's like uh, um, there are many people who are committed to rejecting the afterlife. When I die, I die. It's like, oh, you know that? <laughs> it's like, when I die, go to heaven. Oh, you know that? It's like, all we have are intimations, beautiful intimations that make our souls rejoice. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making definitive statements. I just want to be open to the glory. Right? And when I die, I'm very curious to see what happens next. <coughs> right? So, no, uh, again, it's kind of like Rabbi Yaakov's words. Repentance and good deeds in this world, even for a moment, are better than eternal life in the world to come. Yet one moment of bliss in the world to come is more exquisite than all the life in this world. <sighs> so, um, let's see. Uh, Esther and then Garrett. Thank you, Anne. Good to follow on what Anne was talking about. Speak as loud as you can. To follow up with what Anne was talking about, 
there are people in this world who are considered intuitives. Mm -hmm. And intuitives have some connection with the afterlife. My son is one of them. Fabulous. And my husband speaks to my son. And the word bliss comes from my husband, that he is in a state of bliss. So when I read that, it really connected with me in such a personal way. And I thank Anne for your story because had you not had your story, I would not have, have said this. And, um, so well, I, think, I think Rabbi Yaakov is very wise. Yeah. How uh -huh. small-minded we have to be to say, repentance and good deeds in this world are better than eternal life in the world to come. End of sentence. Right. How small-minded. Like, what? You've been there? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and yet, repentance and good deeds are better than anything. And so, and yet, we have intimations yeah. of eternal bliss. Each one in our own way, each one. Why would we reject that? Right. What would motivate us to reject that? It's so sad. Yeah. And then, on the other hand, there are those who want to package eternal bliss right. and sell it. Right. right. That's a lot of organized religion. Yeah. Uh, and how horrible that is to do that and to basically take in um, uh, 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 needy people looking for uh, what will make them be okay by trying to uh, uh, commodi commodify this, this bliss. It's like, it, it infuriates me, right? So all of that, that's why a paradox for me means someone wise is talking, right? The paradox, don't con they don't contradict each other, they coexist. Right. Only our m small mind wants to make sure it's one or the other. Uh, but if we're talking about how to so the life of our souls, then we live with a lot of coexistence of contradictory things. And can we embrace it all? Let's see, Gary, your hand is up. Yeah, I'm not sure he's talking about the afterlife at all. Well, well uh, who knows, yeah. I think there's um, a lesson here that's, that, that, that's far more practical than that. And that in a sense, he's a precursor to Einstein in terms of the relativity of time. I think he's saying, or at least I get meaning out of him saying, that the world to come could be the next moment. Ah, where beautiful. I, where I've been transformed by my kindness or by my awareness, and that world to come doesn't have to be when I'm enshrined and tombed. It's the eternal life that comes when I'm a changed individual. That's right. So you are not the first person to say that. In the no 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 I, I just I just want to say you're, I didn't mean that in a negative way at all I meant that and I'm so, so grateful that you brought that up so the Hebrew word for is olam haba the world that is coming that's what it, that's the best way to translate it the world that is coming and in the Zohar which is the Jewish mystical primary Jewish mystical text composed in the Middle Ages. They interpret the world to come, not as we just said it, the world to come, like it's in the future, but as it's, as it's written here, the world that is coming. 
coming every moment. And they, they quote the Torah. And they say, uh, A river flows from Eden and waters the earth. And they say, we just want to drink from, that's the world that is always coming. It's always coming. It never stops flowing. It's right here, right now. So that's why I explained that the rabbinic tradition understands Shabbat as to be a taste of the world to come, of the world that is coming, because we stop all of our doings so that we can focus on being. So I thank you very much. Um, beautiful. Yes, Sasha. Well, just one word that I can experience the afterlife to be the ultimate shuva. You know, it's an opportunity to really reflect, review, and then choose to come back. Like oh, if you're reincarnate, if, if, if we reincarnate. Yeah. Uh, yes, there's a whole other stream of thought there, which I neither accept nor reject, mm -hmm. but just hold as a wonder. Um, uh, because in the um, uh, late Middle Ages, uh, Luriana, the, the Kabbalah uh, starts to uh, develop a whole, um, a whole uh, doctrine of reincarnation in Judaism which most of us don't know about because, um, well, so that by the mid, by the 17th, 18th centuries, most Jews believed in Gilgul HaNefesh, in the reincarnation of souls. Really? The Judaism that we practice is the result of the scientific revolution and an effort by Western, Western <laughs> by industrialized Jewish communities to become acceptable um, uh, uh, sources of um, to be an acceptable form of belief that the adherents will accept, right? The, and so, uh, so reincarnation, which is all over the place from like the I don't know, 15, 16, 17, 18th century, kind of like just gets squeezed to the back. But um, Hasidim still talk about it all the time. Yeah, just so you know, this gets back to, and this is, so, this is still so important, to our original thing about what does Judaism say about X. Right. Right. And, um, <laughs> depends who you're talking to and in what century and in what community. So I think, I'm sorry, I don't know your name, but you were the one that said it's about growing up. Yes, that's Blaze. 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 Yeah. Okay. That's Blaze. So I, th I think um, from what I've been hearing that maybe um, maybe that growing up means that you don't really get told, well, it's this or it's that. Maybe when you're grown up, you you you've you outgrown. More you, you mm -hmm. can tolerate more ambiguity. You can tolerate more ambiguity. In uh, fact, you can embrace it. Yeah. Is that the mature soul? I think so. I'm, I'm aiming for it, everybody, because otherwise I think I'm going to expire. <laughs> um, yes. Maybe that's what prepares us for the world to come. Maybe if I can embrace all that ambiguity, then when I'm on own of death, I can embrace that also, even though I've been alive. You have to make your mind bigger. Right, so I'll quote um, uh, Maxine Hong Kingston in The Woman Warrior, because this was my mother's favorite and she had it over her desk. It said, I learned to make my mind large, large enough to, um, uh, for, for paradoxes. Um, yes, uh, uh, Susan. 
Well, I, I felt for a long time that... Talk as loud as you can. Um, for a long time, I felt that, well, I believed in reincarnation because to me, it, it's the only way I can see this as a just world because uh, some no, people no, no. are born <coughs> in such horrible situations that it seems that the only way I can say that there's any justice, this is just for me, sure, absolutely. Is, is to think that maybe it's because of some past life misdeeds that they're born into, you know, like a, a, a person in a country where there's right. like Sierra Leone or some of these places where everything's so horrible and they have to get out on a raft and then they, you know, they're in the middle yep. of the ocean, you know, all yep. of those horrors that we, that we read about or see in the news. And that's the only way I can feel that there's any justice. Where is justice? In this world. Mm. Thank you so much for expressing that. Take a look at page seven, number 19. Okay, so imagine you're sitting at your rabbi's feet, which is what they describe it. You sat at the feet of so-and-so, and you want this answer. And Rabbi Yanai would say, the tranquility of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous, these are beyond human understanding. That's no answer. <laughs> Except that it's true. It's true. It, but we can be with that together. And yes, I love the way you expressed it. That would, yes, reincarnation has to be there if there's any justice in this world. I understand. I don't have the answer. I just neither does Rabbi Yanai, but we can be together here and contemplate that. Huh. Um, and look, the next one says, Rabbi Matya ben Harash would say, be the first to extend greetings to every human being. And be a tail to lions rather than a head to foxes. Mm -hmm. Okay, what's the fox? This is Greek times. Remember Aesop's fable? Yeah, from the grapes. What's the fox? He, he would try to fool everybody. The trickster. Yeah. The trickster. The underminer, the, 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 one, the con artist. And the lion? Was wisdom. Wisdom, king of beasts, yeah, yeah. You'd rather be a tail to a lion, a lion than the head of the fox, right? I love that one. That's good direction for this year. That, that's really good. Okay, let's go back. These are great, aren't they? Let's go back to the front page, because we got through one word. <laughs> The world stands on three things. <laughs> on Torah, now I think we have a better idea of what that word is sort of, what, the con, what that word is framing for us. Yeah. Then the next word is simply in Hebrew, avodah. Okay? And the translation says, the service of God. So, we have to look, again, we see what all the constellation of what Torah is. What's avodah? Uh, work. If you grew up uh, with Hebrew in your life, modern Hebrew, avodah is labor. The labor party in Israel is called the avodah party. Avodah is work. And what's an eved? A slave or a servant. Which is it? Okay, it's both. Right? The best way to translate 
uh, when we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, we were Abadim, is we were servants. We were servants to Pharaoh in Egypt, though we were under forced servitude. Right? But that's who we served. Um, and Moses says over and over again, God's instructions to Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Same word, avaduni, serve, uh, evid. So, avodah is service. Um, and um, so the same, that word is used for what the priests in the temple in Jerusalem, their activity of giving sacrifices and offerings was called avodah. Avodat Hashem, service of God. Then prayer also becomes known as Avodah, but with an extra word, Avodah Shebalev, the service of the heart. So as Judaism evolves, what was divine service executed by the priests and the Levites in the temple becomes something that every individual can do with prayer. So I'm just giving you context. I, we'll keep unpacking this. Warren? Is there a special relation between this avodah and the avodah service that's part of the afternoon of Yom Kippur? Uh, yes. On the afternoon of Yom Kippur, we have a service that's called the avodah service, which is a uh, medieval poem in its traditional sense. We do very creative things with it here. That recounts how... Uh, on Yom Kippur, in the ancient temple, the high priest would prepare himself to go into the Holy of Holies and ask God for forgiveness. And that was called avodah, the, the, the service of the divine that the high priest would do. So that's what the avodah service is. Yeah. And avodah shebelev is one of the Hebrew terms for prayer, the service of the heart. Um, so... On three things the world rests. On Torah, which I would say on developing wisdom. Right? On the service of God. Who do we serve? Do we serve Pharaoh? Or do we serve the infinite creator? Okay, now again, I want to take that very metaphorically. Um, because um, the rabbis also understood it metaphorically. Uh, yes, Rob? Is this of or to? Service to God or service of God? Exactly. Oh, interesting. What's the distinction? Well, I, I'm asking you. I don't know. To serve God. What does it mean to serve well, in, God? In service of God, right? So doing these acts of kindness, which is also referenced in the same sentence, versus, um, how is it phrased here? Service of God it is, a re- is receptive. It's, a, it's exactly. passive. Oh, no, it's active. It's active. It's active, and it's about our spiritual lives. Okay. Thanks for asking that question. Yes, thank you. This, so avodah here means the nurturance and activity of our spiritual lives. Prayer, especially. Because in, uh, in rabbinic Judaism, prayer was the main spiritual practice for, uh, for communing with the one. Right? So, Torah is about studying, learning, wisdom, it's, but prayer is not the, um, 
this fundamentally intellectual activity that we're engaged with here today. It makes sense? Mm-hmm. Prayer is not that. Avodah is the, the, the actual spiritual relating, the spiritual relationship we have with the infinite. And nurturing that. If we do not, we do not have a relationship with all that is. We don't. Whatever we think of God, we are serving Pharaoh. Pharaoh being that quality of human beings that thinks that we are the end all and be all. That's what Pharaoh thinks. Yeah? Sometimes when they're talking about the three pillars, don't some, sometimes it's said Torah, Tefillah? Torah, no, it's always Avodah. Avodah? But Avodah is a synonym for Tefillah. Okay. Um, yes? A translation question. The Omed stands on. Yes. And rest is a synonym there? Uh, well, um, uh, the world depends on. Mm-hmm. Depends. Mm-hmm. In other, and the world here, uh, you can put that at any, again on any level. What do they mean by world? Because olam is another fascinating Hebrew word. Uh, because olam, which gets translated as um, the world, our olam, uh, but when we read, when we say, Baruch HaTadonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe. The Olam, the Olam is, the best way to translate Olam is time-space. Um, this place where we live. <laughs> this, this, this universe in which we find ourselves. That's the Olam. Um, and uh, so existence depends on us fulfilling this, all three of these aspects. So how would I say that? This doesn't mean to say, as far as I'm concerned, not from a wisdom perspective, from, from a, again, from a much more mechanistic perspective, someone could sell you, on, you got to do these things or the world's going to come to an end. Right? And these people are raking in the bucks. Because, right? You know what I'm saying? But that's, yeah, you can read it that way. But this is a book of wisdom. And that's not wise. That's manipulative. So, um, uh, so what it's saying here is that existence, our presence here, depends on us fulfilling, not just on going on all pistons to have a relationship to seeking wisdom, to have, to, to, to do Torah, to have a, um, a non-verbal, it, well, prayers have a lot of words in them, but to have a non-intellectual uh, um, uh, relationship, a heart, a heart relationship to the cosmos. And then the third one, Gmilut Hasadim means acts of loving kindness which is the other pillar of uh, what it means to be a person, is how we, how we actively give to other people. So the, this triad is uh, uh, sort of like how to, how to live, in a way. I saw some hands. Yes, Deborah. So I, I, I think about that second one is particularly important to me, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But, so I think about it in my life in terms of where do I feel that connection. It's part of why I've come here for service. 
because I feel it here. And it's not a passive thing because I have to take action to be where and how I feel it in nature, in hiking, cuddling the dog, you know, like all of those ways where, where I feel myself lifted to that holy place. Beautiful. I'm hoping the synagogue services, we call them services in English, I'm hoping that synagogue services are fulfilling that. That's my goal. Most services fall pretty flat. <laughs> right? Though some people find uplift in all kinds of beautiful situations that other people find meaningless. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, but it's not an automatic, you don't pay your ticket and then get it. Right. You pay your t- We're not the audience. And I think part of the, part of the um, challenge we face is, as profoundly secular as we are in the society, and as much as we're taught to be consumers, uh, is that you can't come in and consume this. Um, and the way I've said it in synagogue many times is, it's not that I'm the performer, the leader's the performer, and you're the audience. It's that we're the performers, and we're performing for God. God is the audience, as it were. Do you follow what I'm saying? We're, otherwise, we're not going to understand. Um, so I'm glad you get to experience that here. That's my goal, is to fulfill during our services this second of the pillars. Just as my goal in my classes with you is to fulfill this first one, and then my goal as a community is that we enact deeds of loving kindness out of the nourishment for our souls that we're receiving through fulfilling these other activities too. That's, that's, um, that's how, and and I guess I want to point out, that's how Rabbi Yehuda Nasi decided to begin the collection. That's the first teaching, right? The first word. It's very deep for me, and uh, and 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 contains universes in it, right? Um, so when it says sustain, sustains the olam, what does that mean, right? That it does. Again, you can be very mechanistic and say the world's going to come to an end if we don't do X, Y, and Z. But it's, I think it's talking about our own, our own sense of what it means to be alive, our own sense of being <coughs> in the world, our own sense of being part of creation, uh, that we have an active role to play, to develop ourselves, to participate as, as children of God in this, in this cosmos. Uh, Stacy, did you have your hand up? I'm just sending, can I talk to you after this? Because, uh, because when... I'm seeing um, what should we do if um, if we're on the receiving end of the the, the begrudging eye. Someone. Oh. Hatred. Oh well, we haven't gotten to that one yet. You will. You can talk to me about. It. I won't have time this afternoon. I'm afraid. Not today, but um, you can yeah. absolutely, when, and hopefully we'll talk about it in this class. When one is hated, or the subject of hatred. It's a big, big question, and I think any of us can relate to that right now. What was the question? Um, we're not looking at it right oh, now. Oh, yeah, okay. But what I want to say is, um, we are living in a time of, of, of rampant hatred, right? And, any, and, and, and we might be, all of us, 
are suffering from hatred right now. Some of us are, are, are in the line of fire of someone specific and might be in, you know, like Stacey, you might be in a very tough situation. But the question for this class is that we're all facing that right now. How do we walk in the world that's filled with hatred? How do we do it? I want us to ask that question this month because I need the answer, right? Um, and I'm getting the answer. It's not the answer, if you know what I mean. I need to talk about this. If we're gonna, if we're gonna walk our talk as a spiritual community, then we have to talk about it. Because we're, we're, we're in the, it's, it, I don't need to explain more right now. So yes, we'll be talking about that, I'm sure. Um, I don't wanna go further in that direction right this Another minute. Another time. Yes, but, but thank you for raising it. Are these related to what Stacy was saying? No. no. Okay, go ahead. Not really, One, two, three. except that acts of loving kindness. Acts of loving kindness. The last one is that no matter what, you can owe it. Today, I, yesterday, I went, walked by a woman whose T-shirt said um, something like, I can't remember what it was, something like, um, your face looks great when it's filled with kindness. I said something like that. I said, where do you get that T-shirt? online. But it was something like that, because it was like a direct statement to other people outside you mm -hmm. know, who are looking at it, whatever. But acts of kindness, it's like in any community, in any community, no matter how, well, I'll say in our community, you have to, every single interaction, you know, at home, in the synagogue, on the street, you can always up your level of loving kindness. You can always up your game, that's right. <coughs> and that is so important. And the other thing I just wanted to say is like when you, Warren asked about, well doesn't, it says Omed, Ha'olam Omed, it's, it's translated as rest, not, you said depends on. But I love to think of this triad, as you call it, really as a tripod. A tripod, yeah, that's, that's what know, I meant. The easiest, the best balance is a tripod. Mm -hmm. You know, when you have three, it's a lot easier than two. You know, it's that's right. Okay, That's so why they do it. Pod. But in these times, I think one of the answers we're going to keep coming back to is acts of loving kindness. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I like the song when we sang last Shabbat. And we shall lift each other up. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. the thing, to always look at how can we lift the other up instead of bashing them down. It's so easy to put down if we feel put upon. Thank you. You said that so beautifully. That's very helpful to hear. Uh, you know, sh and look at number 15 on page one. Say that again? Look at number 15 on page one. Oh, okay. Shammai would say, this is another tree, triple thing, make your Torah study a permanent fixture of your life, say little and do much, and greet every person with a pleasant countenance. That's what it said on the t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I just want to say, you could say that each one of these is like a personal mission statement, right? They don't have, it doesn't have to be one right one. It's like, it's just like when you find the t-shirt with the message you want for that moment. Um, I was on the Cape, and I always look at the funny t-shirts, and uh, I'm sorry for what I said when I was hungry. That was one of the t-shirts. <laughs> 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 I got it for my daughter. 
<laughs> anyway, good for t-shirts, right? Absolutely. So each one of these is a mission statement. Uh, Barb, you had your hand up. Uh, just something very simplistic. I mean, Please. I think sometimes people think that an act of kindness has to be, and we talked about this. Oh, just one second. Hold on. We'll finish their conversation, and then we'll talk. That's fine. Okay, nice and loud. Okay. So sometimes I think we think the exact acts of kindness have to be these grandiose things, but, right. and we've already discussed how it can be very simple. I'm just, you know, I go in for a cup of coffee to wherever, or Danish, or whatever, and I say, so how's your morning going to whoever's mm -hmm. waiting on me? And I think sometimes they're surprised, you know, that right. I'm asking, you know, maybe they morning they haven't even been there that long yet or whatever, but it's just just an acknowledgement. Anything. Yeah. Any acknowledgement. Greet every person with a pleasant countenance, says Shama. Right. Thank you. Yes. Uh, I had an experience like that. In New Talk York. to everybody. Oh, I had an experience like that in New York City, just crossing the street, and there was a, a man who happened to be black who was and there was construction, and he just turned the sign so that I could cross, because they were sort of holding things up because of construction. And I, you know, I said, thank you. And he said, oh, have a wonderful day. And I said, oh, you have a wonderful day, too. And he went like this, like he was touched that I had paid attention oh, to sweet. him. And, and yeah. tears came to my eyes, because I just felt so, it was just such a moment of just, a simple interaction. Yeah, more than simple. Is that well? But no, is that the moment so of bliss that's yeah. worth more than uh? Yeah. You know, is those are moments when we are in, in in connection, via love, with right. other beings. Maybe that's where. Right. Maybe that's where it is. And those don't yeah. stay. Those are by definition transient. But then you can keep tasting it. That's beautiful. Thank you. Sasha? Just a question on number 14, because all the other ones have a source of what, who said this. Oh, Hillel. Is that Hillel? Yes, it, oh, it okay. proceeds from number 12. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, There's no yes. 13. Oh, no, I edited. I went ahead and edited. I chose my favorites, because I'm the teacher. That's right. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. You get to do that. <laughs> but you're welcome. You can easily find this online. Um, you can read the whole thing. But for the purposes of my class, I chose the ones that really yeah. just jump out at me. So that's why you have this collection. Gail, you had your hand up. Yeah, I, I had some feeling that we're in the midst of a, something of a counter-revolution in that I see more acts of kindness than I'm used to. And I think so many of us are responding to the atmosphere with this kind of very, you know, how was your day? Or mm -hmm. opening the door. Oh, lovely. Saying, you can get ahead of me online. You only have one item. Whatever it may be. And I also, a lot of my friends, when I've asked them, are finding that particularly in response to a person of color being very overtly making sure there is an act of kindness beautiful in, in, a, in the most simple interchange like have a good day opening the door I mean, beautiful basic basic but and it seems to me i'm seeing i know i live in a bubble here but i've seen it in washington and i've seen it in new york also i'm so glad I'm, and i'm glad to, <laughs> and what, what? Yeah, maybe. and i'm glad to hear that because i'm also experiencing a a less definable 
level of tension and upset um, as in, in, say, the synagogue community and the people I deal with. And it, it's very tricky stuff because then it leads each of us to act out uh, potentially in ways that are like, why, why'd you do that? What? What? And so, so I'm, I think one of the antidotes is to figure ways to reduce tension, open hearts, de-escalate, find anything we can do. And I think that's one of our tasks during this Elul is to figure out how we're going to walk into the new year not quite so um, uh, wrecked. You know what I mean? Uh, Diane? Yes. I think what, what Gail said is maybe true, but I, I think it also is maybe not a function of the times we're living in, but a function of age. Oh, maybe. I think as we mature, as we grow up, we really, I mean, it's children... Are, you know, toddlers are not grateful. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, why would they be? They deserve everything. Just give it to me. Yeah, you know? yep. And it's a progression. And, you know, having taught children and adults and seniors for many, many years, I always say, oh, I like the seniors best. They always say thank you. <laughs> you know? And in my own life, I've, I feel that I have, become, as I've become a senior, taken that on that, you know, if I see a young person who just, uh, you know, someone in their 20s or something, and they're just wearing this adorable dress, I say, oh, you look so cute, which is something an old person says. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was grateful to get to an age where I could start calling most children just sweetheart and darling. <laughs> and that, you know. yeah. I, I want to say, again, uh, um, my mom, when she had to start using a walker, uh, it was total drag, you know, and she, she, they were living in Manhattan. And, but she, she said to me many times how the walker was making people be very nice to her. <laughs> and she really appreciated it. She was touched by it. I, I remember that. Okay. I, I wanted to share something that I've been struggling with and, and actually need to confront um, very shortly <laughs> on the clock. Um, I, I work in, I'm a professional in a school system, and I've worked very hard to, I thought, to cultivate relationships with, um, with, with people beyond the professional staff, with the support staff, with secretaries, with, with everyone who works to make the school work for, for children. And... Um, the other day, right before the start of school, I was talking to um, someone who works in, in the office. And um, it, I don't know how it came. We, 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 we were talking about um, a, a school building that is empty and in West Hurley. Well, it gets long. Anyway, she she said to me um, about this situation in the, in the community, about what to do with a, an old school building, that somebody had threatened, she used the word threatened, to sell it to someone who was going to bring in the ultra-Orthodox community and that a cousin of hers um, 
is a postal worker and the Orthodox Jews are such filthy, dirty people. I, 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 don't, I don't know if she knows that I'm Jewish. Maybe she doesn't know that, maybe she does. I don't know which is more horrifying to me. And I responded in my teaching mode. And I knew it didn't connect, I knew it, I knew it brought me further apart from her. Hmm. It didn't do what I hoped it would do. I wasn't going to show her the light. I let my anger and hurt come through even though I tried not to. I, and I ended with saying, you know, dirty Jew sounds like an anti-Semitic trope to me, and walked out. Mm -hmm. And again, this is someone who, who I've worked to establish a, a, a good rapport with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's been weighing on me. Mm -hmm. And when I saw her the next time, I worked hard to, without, I didn't know how to directly address it, I didn't know what, but she, she now had a wall up. Mm -hmm. I could see she had a mm -hmm. wall up. Mm -hmm. And I tried to, you know, just go out of my way to make pleasant conversation, to thank her for the little things that I needed her to do for mm -hmm. me, whatever. I, but um, anyway, So, I still, yeah. I, I'll just finish up quickly. I, I, the person I tend to be um, makes me hold on to the anger and the hurt. And what, what I've gotten from today is that and I don't know if it will make a difference to her or, but it will make, it will make a difference to me anyway. Um, the other day a friend came to my house on Labor Day for brunch and brought me, instead of um, something to contribute to brunch, brought me a little pin that said, um, you, are, you are a wonderful person. And I said, oh, that, oh, that's such a wonderful thing to have brought. Thank you. I'll wear it for a day or so, and then I'll find somebody else to give it to. And so now I'm thinking I, that I should give it to her and say, give this to your cousin. And that's it. And it's not that would be a hard thing for me to do <laughs> because I want to give it to someone who I really think is a good person, who I really think is a wonderful person, who I love, but, but that person who I would give it to would be someone who already knows I feel that way about them and who doesn't really need that oh. from me. Um, so maybe, you know, I've gotten an answer to something that I've 
really been struggling with, and that relates to all, you know all that anger and hatred that that we're experiencing that um, that I'm fighting not to feel towards what I you know. Is it okay to punch a Nazi? Is the yeah, you yeah. know yeah. is it it's that kind of yeah. question that um, that I find myself struggling with in this time and finding it hard to access the the love for people who I perceive as as hating. It's hard. Thank you. So uh, I'm going to thank you, Kay. I'll use that as a way to wrap up today because we're almost out of time which is to say that you've just described exactly what the process of teshuva is, what we're supposed to be doing this month. And again, I'll repeat, nobody said it was, <coughs> it was easy, right? To be a good human being is, 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 is a struggle, frequently, and to figure out what the right thing to do is. And so the process of teshuva is recognizing what you've done, what happened, doing the internal that you're doing, thinking about how and if you can make amends. So it's beautiful. And uh, uh, rather than have 30 of us give you any more advice, um, uh, you... I'll take it, though. Yeah, but thank you. No, no, no. You can. You have many wise, thoughtful friends. I'm here. Um, people are here. That if you do need or want anyone to process with, that's what... That's what we can do for each other also, right? So I thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, whew. Yeah. So, it's a tough one. yeah, it's a tough one, and that's yeah. what our world is right now. So everybody, um, uh, I really appreciate you all coming today. This has been a very helpful discussion for me. And don't forget about the sign-up sheet for High Holidays there. Oh, Ellen Trivoisers reminded us, it's customary to blow the shofar every day during the month of Elul. Yeah, and then a little announcement. Absolutely. Listen, everybody. On Sunday, uh, the Sustainability Committee is hosting a what we call information uh, session on two issues that are really important. One is state legislation that's going on about climate change on the state level and then something on the national level is also being pushed through. So if you want to learn more about what's happening. Oh, thank you. That's this so Sunday. That's our sustainability committee here at 7 o'clock on yeah, Sunday. Seven. I'll also add that our new student rabbi is coming this Shabbat. A lovely, I'm looking forward to getting to know her. Miriam is her name, Geronimus. And uh, uh, she will give the Dvar Torah on Saturday. And she'll also be here for our first Friday dinner tomorrow night. And then next Wednesday night, we're hosting a lecture with Leon Botstein oh, yeah. here. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. The Woodstock Day School asked us to co-sponsor this. Um, it's on Wednesday at 7 p.m. on the Place of Liberal Arts and Education in Times Like These. There's flyers, there's flyers up there. Ivy was here. Oh, okay, that's why. So but I don't see her. She's not here now. Okay, that's fine. <clears throat> so, we'll conclude.
per Ellen's, Rabbi Ellen's suggestion, by everyone standing up for a moment, it's easy for you to stand. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.